Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire. I'm Greg Kaminsky, and your co-host is Billy Hepper. Now, in episode number 220, you know him, you love him. Freemason, druid, and author John Michael Greer returns to the show to discuss his recent book, The Ceremony of the Grail, Ancient Mysteries, Gnostic Heresies, and the Lost Rituals of Freemasonry. From start to finish, this interview is totally lit. John Michael Greer has more fully revealed some of the most intriguing mysteries of Western esotericism, which for me include Gnostic connections to the Grail mythos and the origins of Freemasonry. To be honest, I never actually thought I would encounter proof that is so clear and was more than willing to accept understandings without it. But this is next level in terms of the history of Western esotericism. Highly, highly recommended. The Ceremony of the Grail is a must-read, along with Greer's book on temple technology, The Secret of the Temple, Earth Energy's Sacred Geometry, and The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. A Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to ChamberOfReflection.com, our membership website, who aids us in the cause of informed, authentic, and accessible interviews about Western esotericism. Thank you again. Because of your support, we're able to bring you recordings of this caliber and many more to come. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is The Holy Grail by Russ Hopkins and Jerry Palmer. Hello. Hello, John. Yeah. Good to speak with you again. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. I really, really appreciate it. It's well, always good to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. It's free publicity for me. You know, what's not to like? <laughs> Indeed, and we get to listen to you talk about your awesome research and writing. So it's a great, great deal, I think, on both sides. Glad to hear it. So uh, I just, I guess, just want to kick things off by saying yeah. how much I enjoyed your book. Uh, I love the topic. I found it endlessly interesting to read and consider and think about and just kind of like keep going back over the material and it just seems like it keeps unfolding so i know you allude to that in a little bit in your book but um i just want to say thank you and that i'm sure billy has things he would like to say as mm -hmm. in, along those lines as well yeah just wanted to echo that as well i mean first of all just reading the, the back of your book the description i was just struck of how you managed to somehow combine all of my interests into this single volume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that one, yeah. covered, that one covers a lot of my interests. Yeah. And, you know, so the research and reading that, that went into that goes literally back into my early teens. Wow, okay. So it's, it's one of those, it's something I've been working on for a long time. That's great. Yeah, you managed to, to pack a lot in there, you know, the Grail Mysteries, Templar Rituals, Freemasonry, Sacred Architecture, just everything is this is great so <laughs> suffice to say i i devoured this book at record speed which is always a sign that i really liked it and found it difficult to to put down in fact um Thank it was written, that's, that's always that's always great great for an art for an author to hear yeah i just found it was written in such a accessible style as well which i appreciated because so many books on the grail have this kind of cryptic kind of pretentious style but i just found the pacing and the length of the book just perfect i mean you managed to, to well, just pack you. pack a lot into this book yeah. so i i learned i learned a lot by by going and going back to my my original love of fiction and writing a bunch of novels is that you learn some things about writing by doing that and i think I've, I've tried to apply that to my nonfiction as well yeah i can imagine so yeah just wanted to congratulate you john on this book okay. I, I absolutely love it i absolutely recommend it to our listeners i actually read it twice over my my christmas holidays just to absorb okay. it all okay yeah. cool um just curious, what, what made you decide that this was the right time to write a book on the Grail? Um, well, I'd, ha I'd had the project in mind for a long time and had been just piecing things together, piecing things together. After I finished the, re the specific research that um, resulted in my earlier book, The Secret of the Temple, 
I knew that really doing something focused on the Grail myth was going to be the next project along those lines. But I knew I had a lot of reading and study to do, and so um, it kind of it kind of went from there. Um, the the material in Secret of the Temple is I mean you don't have to read Secret of the Temple to understand Ceremony of the Grail by any means, but one very much led to the other because Secret of the Temple again the the research project that led to that brought me into the underworld of of old Gnostic rituals and some of the very secret traditions that went into the Templars that went into the Rosicrucians and so on. Excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about the sources that you went to when you were doing the research for your new book? Um, that's a long story. <laughs> um, well, basically, I had, the, I had the advantage here in that I had been crazy about Arthurian legends, especially about the Grail legend, since, since my teen years since my early teen years, you know, about the time I graduated from reading these sort of these sort of versions of Arthurian stories for children into actually getting into the scholarship. Um, so I obviously I started by rereading a lot of the Grail um, literature, both the original texts, unfortunately, which are pretty much all available in translation these days. And then also the scholarship on the subject. That brought me back to Jesse Weston who was um, considered in her time one of the most important scholars of the entire subject, one of the, one of the major figures of Grail scholarship, and who has basically been erased from the discussion these days. And it was Jesse Weston who ended up being the lens through which I focused what I was doing, and from her, the various leads that she dropped, things that she, um, she knew as much about as anyone did at the time. I mean, this, this was back in the very early 20th century. The Nakamadi manuscripts, the, the Nakamadi Library of Gnostic Texts, had not yet been discovered. So there were sharp limits on what we knew about Gnosticism. There was a lot of new stuff that's come out over the recent decades, um, you know, since, since her death. Um, in, about the Holy Grail, about the Templars, um, all kinds of subjects. So I started with her and just sort of zoomed off in every available angle, and then it started getting then it started getting weird because I would run into things more or less at random. Of course, this this happens. I mean, I forget who it was suggested that there's a spirit of the bookstore or the spirit of the library that, that um, nudges the right book out to you when you need one. <laughs> but the, you know, it, it happens. The, the the entire chapter that I wrote on the debatable land, that weird little region between Scotland and England, mm-hmm. the local public library here in East Providence, which it's it's a very pleasant little library, but it's not a huge research library. They turned up with a book on the subject. Oh. of all things, and I was looking at this, going, "Oh, that looks interesting." I'm, you know, and I didn't even connect it with the Grail originally. I just saw this book about this little region that was neither, back in the day, was neither part of England nor part of Scotland, but this little separate zone, and thought, wow, that's interesting, I should read it, and then realized by about chapter three, oh, I know where we are, I know what's going on here, connected it to the Merlin legends, connected it to material I'd read about um, about, about the um, early Dark Ages in the north of Britain and, and, and southern Scotland, and started realizing that it was actually one of the keys to the whole riddle. Connected that to some of the material that Jesse Weston wrote about the the long-term survival of the Grail ritual in Northern Britain, and away we went. So it was it was a long and winding road. Um, everything in the everything in the bibliography was something that I had to dig my way through. Um, sometimes with a great deal of pleasure. Sometimes, as when I was reading Arthur Edward Waite, um, going, "Oh God, how much of this is left?" <laughs> but yes. Waite, I mean, I, I shouldn't be as sarcastic toward him as I am, but I am. Um, he was, God, he was a dreadful writer. <laughs> yes, I second that. <laughs> uh, one, one, th- one thing, one thing I do have to say: he's better, a better writer than he is a poet. You can find his poetry nowadays if you really, really want to. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I struggled through his Church of Hidden Church of the Holy Grail. I, I thought about, I don't know, I made a supreme effort to get through that in my, in my early years, yeah. but yeah, it's a struggle. And, and why? And he's doing all of it, because that was, that was the tackiest sort of bait and switch. The hidden church of the Holy Grail, what is it? Why? It's ordinary Christianity, just a little more, you know, a little more serious and profound. You know, every, everything in Arthur Edward Waite's cosmos came down to, how can I convince people to, to embrace Jesus? 
mm-hmm. which is fine, but it gets dull. Yeah. He does put copious amounts of, of research into his work, though. I mean, his, yeah. his notes are extensive, for mm-hmm. sure. His notes are extensive, but you have to you have to read them knowing that he has his agenda, mm-hmm. and because there, as I, as I noted in in my book, there are places where he literally falsifies information, where he he says things that are that not only are not true, but he had every reason to know were not true, yeah. because you know everything has to everything has to be subordinate to you know the the goal of dragging souls to Christ. And you know, apparently, telling little white lies is not um, was not a problem for him. Yeah, he definitely had his his own agenda going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Thank you, John. Um, I want to, I guess, start with some just basic questions, which mm-hmm. maybe don't have some sim- as simple answers. But <laughs> could you talk a little bit about what is the Grail and whom does the Grail serve? <laughs> oh yeah, little bitty questions. <laughs> those those are two of the three questions that the Grail Knight in the different legends would have to say when he got to the Grail Castle. You know, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd sit down. There'd be a banquet, and in total silence, the Grail would the Grail procession would go past him, and then he has to ask the question. And some of them is, "What is this? What is the Grail?" In some of them, it's. Whom does the Grail serve? And in some of that, you turn to the um, Fisher King and say, you know, um, what ails you? What's wrong with you? You have to ask those questions. What is the Grail? Um, the Grail is a lot of different things. One of the French, I think it's one of the French writers, has, it has five different changes, um, of which most are not described. Uh, some people call it a cup. Some people call it a stone. Some people it's a platter with a decapitated head on it. Um, the grail is a symbol it is a it is a way of it's a way of talking about several things and in typical esoteric fashion they're sort of collapsed in on each other so you can use the term with more than one um more than one label um in the the corpus hermeticum the old the book of the um writings attributed to hermes trismegistus out of out of uh Hellenistic Egypt, the crater, the, the cup, the grail is the is the source of nous of, of the enlightened mind, and so it's it's like it's like the the, the vajra or diamond in Tibetan Buddhism. It's the goal of enlightenment. It's also, in another sense, um, as I argue here, and this is this is one of the points that I made in Secret of the Temple. It is an archaic technology a way of using natural forces to generate um, improved agricultural yields through certain specific kinds of structures that were built and tuned and positioned in in a very specific way to draw on um, terrestrial energy currents on the one hand and um, to do things involving um, low-intensity microwaves on the other. Um, So, you see, it's what is the grail? The grail is a category, it is an emblem, it is something that can be unpacked and interpreted in many ways. Whom does the grail serve? None of our um, texts mention that. The question is asked. It's never answered. I think it's like a koan in Zen. You know, you're, you're you're given this question that has no logical answer. You have to answer it by rising to a different level of, of awareness. So, um, whom does the Grail serve? Maybe it serves all of us. That was one of the things that Arthur Edward messed with. By the way, he insisted that no, it's who serves the Grail, because of course the Grail for him is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, is fine. Which is fine if you happen to be a mystical Christian, but many of us aren't. Go on. I was under the impression I could be wrong, as I often am, that uh, there were sort of a three levels of the sort of Gnostic understanding of the human mm-hmm. beings, and mm-hmm. that the Grail served the ones who were the the spiritual ones. Mm-hmm. But that could well, be just my uh, preference. No, that's- one one of the one of the things you find in many of the Gnostic traditions is this idea that there are three basic classes of humanity. There are the hylix or material people who who exist purely on the on the physical level. There are the psychics or mental people um, who who can who can think. 
And you have the pneumatics or spiritual people who can actually attune themselves to the gnosis, who can achieve that, that recognition, which is beyond, reason, beyond reasoning thought. Um, one of the things that really interested me about the specific branch of the Gnostic movement that seems to have, have resulted in the ceremony of the Grail, that seems to have, have been part of that whole tradition, the Nasenes, is that they felt that gnosis could be extended to all three in different ways. And so there's a particular mode of initiation for the Hylix, for the material people. There's a particular mode for the psychics and a particular mode for the pneumatics. And each one is appropriate for, you know, whatever station of being you happen to be in. And so, you know, to some extent, you know, whom does the grail serve? Well, is it the grail as a fertility symbol? That's, that's the material-minded thing. Is it the grail as the as this, this tradition, this body of, of wisdom and lore, that's for, the, that's for the psychics. Is it the grail as enlightenment? That's for the pneumatics. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And you touched on something earlier that I just wanted to, to circle back to, if you didn't mind. Um, mm-hmm. It's a whole idea of the grail as this sort of means to transmit this ancient technology, what you described mm-hmm. as this kind of archaic folk technology that was really... Mm-hmm developed over trial and error over, you know, thousands of years. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the end goal of this was, of course, improving the crop yields by using these, you know, specially designed structures as this sort of resonating chamber um, mm-hmm. to amplify certain earth energies. And, and we know that all over the world, you know, specific kinds of religious architecture are traditionally associated with agricultural plenty and abundance. And, mm-hmm. and you cite several good examples in your book, like, you know, the Temple of King Solomon, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about this phenomenon? Because I just found it absolutely fascinating and also how this temple technology might sort of fit into the Grail legends. Okay, sure. The, I'll, start, I'll start by talking about how, what led me there, what, how, how I got the, this, this insight into the temple technology. It was actually by way of the Temple of Solomon. I'm a Freemason, as I think most, most of my most readers know. Right. And the, the rituals of Freemasonry, most of them revolve around the Temple of Solomon, about its construction, about its destruction or rebuilding. All these, they're, you know, basically every detail in the history of the temple from... Um, from the time of, of King David through to the Knights Templar, has a place in, the, in, in Masonic ritual. And of course, that got me thinking, okay, why the Temple of Solomon? Uh, I mean, there are historical reasons why that should have been a temple of great interest, obviously, to a religious tradition descended from Judaism. But what, what, is, what is special about this temple? So I started doing some research into it, and I found all of these references in the Talmud, in other Jewish sources, in Jewish folklore and legend, that when the temple was intact, the crops blossomed. Hmm. Agricultural abundance and plenty was much greater. In fact, it's uh, one of the... Um, Ezra, I think? One of, the, one of the last books of the Old Testament, one of, I think it might be Nehemiah, um, is saying, you know, you, you know perfectly well that before, temple, before stone was put on stone in the, in the rebuilding of the temple, you know, you know what kind of bad crop yields you have, and now it's much better. Hmm. And I was going, hold it. <laughs> you know, because, of course, that kind of thing appears in folklore and legend all over the place. Right. You have these ideas that if you build a temple and make offer, make the right kind of offerings and the right kind of ceremonies to the gods, the gods will respond with abundance. And of course, that got me thinking of um, what um, what Jesse Weston said about um, the Grail as a as a sort of talisman of fertility and abundance. And I started, you know, you can see the sort of pieces drifting together. So I started looking into that subject, came and began to piece together the idea that it's possible that, in fact, using using um, very simple technological means that have been that have, some of which have been reverse engineered at this point, um, it's possible to boost agricultural to agricultural fertility quite considerably by harnessing some of these some of these earth energies, some of these. And we're not talking necessarily something woo woo here. Again, telluric electricity. There are electric currents and magnetic you know, flows that move through the actual physical substance of the earth, you can concentrate and direct those, and they have biological effects. Right. And so, before the, before the um, 
the fertilizer industry um, basically took control of agriculture in um, in most of the developed world. There was an entire field of study called electroculture, where people were literally running weak electric currents through the fields and finding out that it caused it caused a sharp increase in plant growth. You can still find old books on electroculture in online archives and so on. So as piecing this stuff together, I still I, I am still not ex- not entirely sure of the details. It is a que- it is an ongoing quest. One of my readers suggested not long ago that um, there's some evidence that what, what's going on is literally a low-energy maser. A maser is a microwave laser. It basically causes coherent emission of microwaves. And you could do it by you know certain kinds of magnetic fields, certain kinds of other things in an atmosphere that's full of volatile aromatic compounds. We call those incense nowadays, I think. And so there's actually, there, I'm following this one up right now. I have, I have a lot more work to do, and there will be further books. But it seems to be, it seems at least possible that, yeah, people many, many thousands of years ago stumbled, around, stumbled on this, the basic principle of a technology that would boost you know, crop fertility. They, I'm sure they, their interpretation of it was precisely that, you know, if you do these things in exactly this way, the gods are pleased. <laughs> and they give you good crops. You know, they were not approaching this as modern physicists, but they could put two and two together. They were saying, okay, this temple does better, better than that temple. This shrine has more effects than that shrine. What are the differences? So you end up with the geometrical um, factors giving a better, reson- a, a better resonance chamber. You end up with different kinds of incense, huge amounts of frankincense. Um, frankincense was one of the major imports of the Roman Empire. Hmm. They imported in by the ton from what's now what's now uh, the, well from the Arabian Peninsula and East Africa, um, which is where it grows, and you know, ever that was the incense that you used all through the Roman world. They had a lot of other potential incenses. Why did they fixate on that one? Hmm. I have a suggestion. <laughs> but so all of this sort of sort of uh, that that this was the raw material out of which I developed my thesis, out of which I developed the book, The Secret of the Temple. And the grail was one of the things that showed up there because I was looking at, okay, we have, you know, a secret of fertility. What does the grail do when the grail, you know, when, when something goes wrong with the grail, you have the wasteland. Right. No tree grow, no, no trees grow, no water flow, not even a blade of grass. And when you ask the right question and the, grail, the powers of the grail are reawakened, then all of a sudden the wasteland becomes green. You, you could, it's pretty obvious what they're saying here. You know, what use this thing? Understand, ask the right questions about this, this thing, this tradition, this whatever, and the land becomes green. And so that led me into looking, okay, what is the grail? What are the things, what, what are the, symbol, the very symbols that are used for the grail, the interpretations of the grail? One of the things that the grail was in the Middle Ages was the temple technology. It was their way of talking about it in, at a time when symbolism was a very widely used language and one that most people could interpret. So, yeah, um, that, that kind of, that's kind of how all that ties together. Right. It also reminded me, I mean, you only need to look at the great cathedrals in Europe and ancient Christian churches, and you see these wonderful oh, yeah. agricultural motifs, you know, carved everywhere in the stone, you know, yeah. painted on the ceilings. You see this explosion of, you know, grapevines and corn and wheat and, mm-hmm, and fruit mm-hmm. blossoming everywhere, this explosion of life and abundance. And I think that's, that's very intentional. You know, those, oh, those, yeah. themes, those themes are there to remind us oh, of yeah. this link between the, the temple architecture mm-hmm. and the land itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Gothic the Gothic cathedrals are particularly important because those started being built after the Knights Templar were established, after the Knights Templar found whatever they found under the Temple Mount. Right. I argue that one of the things they located, whether there or simply from whichever Gnostic sect they contacted in, in the Holy Land, um, was the was information about the temple technology. And so you see the transformation from Romanesque architecture, um, which the pre the pre Gothic rather heavy um, but potentially still functional approach to the temple technology, you have the Gothic comes in. You have these, um, this explosion, as you say, of vegetative motive, motifs. You have these, you, you have, you walked, you're walking down the aisle of a church, and it looks like you're in a forest with all these stone tree trunks rising up and you know, branching above you. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
I have a bit of a, a follow-up question, if you don't mind. Um, sure. In, in, your, in your book, you, you managed to quite succinctly make a case to connect up three things that might not seem remotely related on the surface. You know, you have this temple technology that we've been talking mm-hmm. about, then you have the stories of the grail, and then you have this secret initiation ritual, which comes down from the, the mystery cults of the ancient Greek and, and Roman mm-hmm. world, you know, the cults of Mithras and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, the armchair historian in me kind of scratches my head at first, like how, how could these things, how could these mysteries come over from the Mediterranean world, make their way all the way over to Britain and France. But the answer is of course, with the Roman legionaries, you know, we know yeah. we're, we're very involved in, in bringing these mysteries with them wherever they traveled. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, as you said, you know, when the, when the legions left Britain, these mystery mm-hmm. traditions remain behind. They were practiced, they were preserved in, in various forms. So mm-hmm. it's a fascinating thesis in my mind. Could, could you just fill us in a little bit sure. more sure. on that? Okay, let's, let's, start with, let's start with the ancient mysteries. Uh, we, don't know a, we don't know anything like enough about them. Um, there's been some very, some very good scholarship over the last 200 years trying to tease out what was, being, what was done. There are various theories and hypotheses about what actually took place. But one thing we know absolutely for a fact is that most of them had to do with agricultural fertility. Think of the Eleusinian mysteries. This is the most famous set of mystery um, rituals in the ancient world, originally practiced at Eleusis, just outside of Athens. And it's all about Demeter and Persephone, the great agricultural myth of Greek times. You know, Persephone is the seed. She goes down to Hades. She rises up again, you know, like this. You bury the seed and up comes the grain. And Demeter is, of course, the goddess of agriculture. And according to the Greek, the, the Greek tradition, it was at Eleusis, at that little town outside of Athens, that the goddess Demeter, who was traveling around the world looking for her daughter, because they they treated her so hospitably, and they tried to comfort her in her grief, and so she taught them how to farm. She was, that was where, as far as the Greeks believed, that was where agriculture began, right there. And so, and the mysteries were all tied up in that. So you have that theme of agricultural fertility right there at the core, and you find that in many other mystery traditions, including, please note, Christianity, which started out basically as a mystery cult. I mean, uh, how many people realize the town Bethlehem? In Hebrew, that means the house of bread. Okay, Hmm. So you have this Savior who's born in Bethlehem, and who is, who is doing all of these miracles involving loaves and fishes and wine, and who finally is, you know, it ri- rises up above the ground to be sacrificed like the head of the barley. <laughs> it's, it's very much a classic Mediterranean mystery kind of religion, which, you know, ended up becoming a world religion of a different kind. But all of these things have this very straightforward connection to agriculture. Now, with in the later history of the mysteries, they got a great deal more mystical material. There was the, you know, the, the okay, we're going to we're going to talk about agriculture, but we're also going to talk about human spiritual development. We're going to talk about life after death. We're going to talk about mysticism and meditation. You have by the time the Neoplatonists get into the act, you have these very rich, complex explanations and understandings of the mystery tradition. But it's all rooted in this basic agricultural concept. Then in come the Gnostics. And most of the Gnostics, of course, as, as you know, the, the ones that have gotten all the press recently are the ones who are saying, you know, the material world is evil. We're trapped in this dreadful iron prison and we must escape to our true homes in the world of light. That, that's the Johannite approach. That's the sort of, sort of generic Naghamati Gnosticism. But you also have these alternative Gnostic views like the Nazis who are saying, no, you know, we're here for a reason. And the initiations of matter are also appropriate. The mysteries, the old Greek agricultural mysteries are the first gate. Regular Christianity to them was the second gate. And then the Gnostic practices are the third gate that actually leads to Gnosis. And so they had this really interesting, you know, sort of three-stage process um, that, that incorporated the old mysteries, as well as conventional Christian ritual, you know, the mass and so on. And of course, you know, the mainstream Christian church had cattle. <laughs> they did not, they could not handle that. Yeah. But, but we, you know, but that, but we know that Gnostic groups like that, they were around, they survived. 
They were good at going underground. We know, you know, they were, of course, all over southern France before the Albigensian Crusade wiped most of them out. They were all over Eastern Europe a century or so, a couple of centuries before that. Um, they kept on popping up here and there because they knew how to keep their mouths shut. <laughs> and especially ones of the Nazian variety who considered ordinary Christian ritual to be, again, that second gate. So you can go to church. All through the Middle Ages, many of these Gnostics were going to ordinary church services. They were, you know, hearing the Mass just like their, their Orthodox neighbors and, and being perfectly devout and all that. But they had this, they also had this first gate of agricultural ritual, and they had the third gate of Gnosis. So you have this sort of continuing process. The Templars got a very heavy dose of that and brought that back with them. One of the charges against the Templars when they were... Um, Facing, you know, um, being persecuted and exterminated was that they believed that this this Baphomet idol of theirs was was what made the plants grow. There we have that same theme, mm-hmm. and so you have this this sort of structure um, propagating itself. You have it by way of you know the Roman legions, of course, bringing the Mithraic mysteries and many other mystery cults to Britain, to France, and so on. You have then the Templars bringing a Gnosticized version of that. You have various strange things going on in some of the oldest monasteries um, in, in Britain and elsewhere. Glastonbury, there were, there were strange things going on in Glastonbury. We don't actually know what all. And then eventually you have, um, by the time this stuff is finally being assembled in the Renaissance and you have the, the origins of modern Freemasonry, you have people who are trying to piece together all the pieces and are drawing on every scrap of heritage they can get from from old writings, from living folk traditions. And and so it's not that these things existed in unbroken form. It's that they were constantly being reinvented and pieced back together and preserved and transmitted in various ways and by various channels. Right. It's a twisting, turning path, but it's it's fascinating to follow. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering like what what were some of the the ways that these traditions were preserved, particularly in England. You mentioned uh, like even folk dances and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, Jesse Weston argued that um, certain classes of English folk dance were what were, were kind of descended from the old mystery cults. They mm-hmm. were what happened when you take a mystery ritual and leave it in the popular mind among, among farming people for about a thousand years. And I think she makes a very good point. And so, so you have that. You have specifically the mummer dances, the sword dances, not, not the Scottish sword dances, but the ones in northern England that sort of symbolically cut someone's head off. Again, you're harvesting the grain. Um, you have um, rituals in certain crafts. The one that, that, of course, everyone brings to mind is Freemasonry, the old rituals of the builders' guilds. And they were people who, the, the old builders were the people who absolutely had to know this stuff because, again, they were involved in constructing the medieval churches that used the temple technology. Right. So they had, these, they had these traditions and material like this. Um, there were probably documentary sources. Um, we don't have any of them in the West. I don't, unfortunately, read Sanskrit or, or medieval Japanese, or I'd be doing some serious research in those languages, because both Japan and um, and India unquestionably had the temple technology, right. and and used it. And, and well, in both cases, they still use it, whether they whether they know the the technology, the details of the technology or not. There, are the Shinto shrines and Hindu temples are still built using the classic patterns using the classic, all the classic geometries, they probably still generate the same effects. Um, so you have basically, it, but, but it did trickle out. It did get lost in the Western world, at least. So, you know, where the ceremony was preserved um, in one fragmentary form in, um, in, in terms of the, like the sword dances and so on, in another fragmentary form as, as the Master Mason degree, um, of, of Freemasonry in several other ritual formats and, and possibly in another one, the, the ceremony of the Grail itself. Um, the temple technology was lost pr- by 1700 at the latest and probably before then. And um, I'm not sure how much of it was preserved even in Asia. Right. Thank you. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you very much. John, I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the elucidation 
Um, oh, yes. And, and also, when you talk about it, maybe include the, some of the gematria that's sort of inherent in it and leads oh, back to these Gnostic Let traditions. see now. Um, yeah. Um, okay, we'll start with the elucidation. Um, that's the, that is far and away the most mysterious of the Grail legends. Um, it is the elucidation. Um, it survives in like three copies. It no, was not a popular thing, but it, it purports to be, it dates from you know, the, the 1200s, and it purports to be the real story, what was actually going on behind the Grail legend. Um, let's see, uh, yeah, uh, John and Caitlin Matthews actually recently published a, a very nice book on the subject called The Secret Book of the Grail, where they give their own translation of it in verse, and they also give um, their interpretation of it, which is different from mine, but doesn't, doesn't actually conflict with it. It's, it's worth reading. It's it, it tells this very strange story. So once upon a time in the land of Logres, um, there was this, this very unusual custom where there were um, pui, which could mean hills or could mean wells in medieval French. It's, it's spelled the same way, so you can't tell. Um, we'll say hills for, for a reason that we can get to later. Um, and there were, there were maidens who tended the pui and who, if you were traveling, you could stop there, and they would feed you. They would bring out, you know, um, these golden vessels, these golden golden bowls full of food, and you could get a meal wherever you know wherever you're traveling. Um, way up on our idea of fast food, and so, but this was the custom in Logres. It'd been the custom in Logres from time out of mind. But then, dun, 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 we have the wicked king Amangons who, instead of accepting the hospitality of the, uh, of, of the Pui, he stopped at one and he raped the maiden who was tending it and stole her golden bowl. And when word of this got out and nothing dire happened to him instantly, his vassals, who should have, of course, upheld justice and, and protected the maidens, did the same thing, and they raped the maidens and they stole their bowls. And that was what caused the wasteland, because what they didn't realize is that once they did that, the, that was the off switch for agricultural fertility in the land of Logres. And so the King Amangons and his wicked vassals all suffered a dreadful fate, not specified. Um, and then and the land passed through a long age of suffering and hardship because it, it's kind of hard to get by when no grass grows, there are no leaves on the trees, no water in the rivers. It was ugly. <laughs> so then, after this long and difficult age, Arthur becomes king of the land of Logres, and um, you know every every brave and gentle knight in in all the world came riding to become a, a knight of his round table, and they all heard about this whole thing, and they said, "Ah, they swore with a you know with single intention they were going to go out there, they were going to." Um, if you know, if if the, if there were, if the maidens had left heirs, they would restore the the wells. They would restore the maidens to their place. They would vanquish the heirs of the of the evil Amangons, etc., and put everything right again. So they went. They all went out on these quests, you know, trying to find um, the maidens. And what they found was all through the wilderness, you would find um, a maiden and a knight. Okay, and you would have to joust with the knight and defeat the knight. And and it turned out that the maidens and the knights were all descended from maidens who had been raped by Amagons and his vassals. So they, had, they were you know, descended from both sides of that old quarrel. And if you vanquished the knights, you could send, in the, the typical way of the time, you could send them back to Camelot where they tell the story and all this kind of stuff. And so various things happened, and it get, gets long and complex, but eventually um, Arthur um, reduced the whole, the whole world to peace, and everything was fine. Um, and the wasteland was made green again, and this is all. T this all ties up with the the um, the court of the rich fisher, aka the the fisher king, who um, which could not be found anymore once the, once Amangons raped the the, the maiden of the well. Um, okay, so now Gematria, we have fun. <laughs> Uh, most people these days in the Western world tend to think of gematria in terms of Hebrew gematria, because um, that's that's the kind that the Golden Dawn made famous. And but there is also um, Greek gematria. Every Greek letter also equals a number. And since Greek was Koine Greek was the standard language of the Gnostics, 
I figured that was the gematria we need, I needed to look into. And as soon as I did that, um, <laughs> I started hitting pay dirt. So um, first of all, I, I gave a shot to the name Blaheris. Blaheris was the first of the, um, the, those knights with the maidens that had to be vanquished and sent back to Camelot. He was also a historical person. And he's referred to in a number of the old Grail legends. Bleheris works out to the number 352 in Greek mythology. Now, as, as you may know, um, in, in Gematria, you can always add or subtract one from any number without changing its meaning. So 352 is the number of um, Hehodos, the way, and Hobios, the life. Think of the way, the truth, and the life. There's a reference to Jesus there. Mm-hmm. Subtract one, you get um, Ohogoes the wizard. Add one, you get Hermes. So we have this messenger, this wizard, this source of magic, who is in some sense the way and the life, and is Hermes Trismegistus. Um, His other name, the other name of Blaheris, is Blihos, and that works out to 312. That's Angelos, messenger. Hermes again. Um, So there's a lot of stuff there. That's that's one example. Amangons works out to 1145. Um, that works out to two different Greek phrases. Hikathedra um, de tes basileas geis, the throne of the kingdom of earth. More importantly, lestis kores, the despoiler of kore, the despoiler of Persephone. Mm-hmm. He's Hades, he's the god of the underworld. Once again, we have a reference here to the Eleusinian mysteries. Grail, Graal in, in medieval French, um, works out to 135, which is the number of doxa, teaching, um, and subtract one, you got Agion, holy thing. Um, there's more. There's much more. Um, I only I, I I went through a fairly simple gematria analysis, and it, it's very clear that the elucidation, in particular, was structured according to gematria. It has a whole series of names that can be unpacked using that very standard tool of esoteric traditions at that time. So it's clear to me that what we've got going on here is is that some that this this I think shows very clearly that what was going on with the Grail legends was not just a bunch of folk tales that were sort of um, hyped up um, for for mass market consumption in the media markets at the time. Um, it was a, as as you know as occultists and mystics have been saying all along. It was it had a very definite, very straightforward spiritual interpretation. Which is supported by the gematria, and which is shown by you know by all of these numerical equivalencies. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I feel like when I read that, I felt somehow my intuition and the feelings that I had about the the whole mm-hmm. Grail mythos for years would somehow validate it. I know they don't need to be validated in that way, but it was kind of nice to have you do I, that. The thing is, the thing is, I had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. I was when I was going. What if I try? You know, because I, I, I had I have I've had access to the elucidation for a long time. I got a I got a photocopy of it years ago. Um, I photocopied it from from a book I got under library loan, um, and then I mean at this point um, I'm sufficiently knowledgeable in French that I was able to do my own translation of it. But um, so I was working with this the elucidation. I thought about what about you know, it won't be Hebrew gematria. It'll be Greek. What if I try Greek gematria? And the numbers started coming out. I was going, whoa, okay. I have not been wasting my time. <laughs> Definitely not. So I know the feeling of validation there. The, you know, the pay, the pay dirt, the ting. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I don't know what it is exactly. I feel like it's, um, it's somehow proof in, in the realm where proof is accepted that, Mm-hmm. Of these things, yeah. yeah. I mean, gematria, gematria is a little is can be a little challenging because, you know, um, you can, if you're sufficiently clever, argue almost anything into meaning almost every almost anything. But this is pretty straightforward. Where you take these numbers and look at them and go, um, yeah, <laughs> that that means what it means. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't get the sense like you were at all even remotely doing anything of like the Kenneth Grant sort of thing. <laughs> so it was very straightforward. I felt it was absolutely yeah. clear. 
Grant Grant is fun, but I you know I think he he's a great demonstration of what you can do with Gematra if you really want to. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, I found I found that whole thing very striking, and then and then to go to end up um, going into Jesse Weston's work and going into the work of some of the other scholars of that time, and finding that they had actually pieced together much of this material that that I hadn't even known. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot, but I was able. To, these days, it's much easier to get things um, via online archives than it was the last time I really soaked myself in Grail Legend. When you didn't have the online archives, you had to rely on interlibrary loan and what you could get. And so I was just saying, okay, so you know, Jesse Weston and several of the other people got the connection to the mysteries. They got the connection to Gnosticism. They got the link to the Knights Templar. All of these pieces, they they came well, possibly much closer than anyone realizes, because Weston certainly seems to have had connection with a group in the early 20th century that was practicing, that was actually actually enacting the grail ritual itself. Wow. Well, John, I know you're an incredibly prolific writer. You're always working on multiple projects. I always admire your work ethic so much. It's really incredible. Can you tell us about any new projects on your horizon? Let's see. What do we got? What are we coming out now? Um, I actually have a, uh, I have a, I have a mid-sized flurry of books um, in process right now. Um, one of my occult teachers, the late John Gilbert, passed away in um, twenty twenty in the early twenty twenty one. Um, he left a, a bunch of manuscript behind him, and there are two books, two works of his: one on tarot, one on the tree of life, that um, I have edited, and those will be out in this coming year. Um, the Doors of Tarot and the Tree of Vision, I think, is the title of the other one. Too. Don't don't quote me on that latter, but um, but yeah, the, that's that's taken a bunch of work. Um, I am I'm again doing a bunch of fiction. I had ended up my 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 set of Lovecraftian novels or para Lovecraftian novels is coming out for a new publisher in in this next year or no no it's in this year now. And um, also the first of a new series of occult mysteries hmm. that um, I want to do, sort of have fun in the mystery genre and also involve a certain – one of the things that, I, that irritates me about so many works of occult fiction is that they don't use real magic. It's all you know, fantasy, um, Harry Potter crap. Yeah. And so I'm doing a set of occult mysteries where all the magic is stuff that people can actually practice. That's excellent. Things that, that occultists actually do here and now. And it makes for some very good stories. So there's that. Um, let's see. The sequel to... Yeah, I've, got, I've, got, I've got several serious projects going on now, so that's, it makes life complex. I have um, The Way of the Golden Section was the first volume in a series of uh, books on, on um, occult instruction, basically, a set of, a set of training manuals. And the work with my my oracle deck, the Sacred Geometry Oracle, and the second of the instructional books in that series, The Way of the Four Elements, that's going to be coming out in the not too distant future. Um, a new edition of my book, A World Full of Gods: An Inquiry into Polytheism, will be out fairly soon, and my commentary on uh, the Cosmic Doctrine by Dion Fortune. So yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of piled up, and it'll all be out in in the months immediately ahead. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've been going through kind of a slow period. I didn't the last two years. I didn't have many books out. Just it was a complicated time. I had I was involved in a change of publishers, and you know there were some things that had to get finished, and did one of those things. That is awesome. I look forward to all that. That is great. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. I hope you enjoy them. Well, you're a wonderful writer, and. It's Thank a really you. pleasure to speak with you. I appreciate you spending time with us and talking yeah. about your work. It's just I, awesome. I, I am. I'm happy to do so. As as I as I've mentioned, it's, it's free publicity for me for for me and my books. What's not to like? Yeah, <laughs> I think Billy and I have talked like numerous times about how much we're looking forward to reading this, how much we enjoy reading you, the book, how much we're looking mm-hmm. forward to talking with you about it, and. Yeah, I mean, just felt like a momentous uh, occasion. The whole, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I this, I, I don't know. I, I've been wrong before, but I think this book um, may make a little more of a difference than some of mine. I'm not sure. We'll see. 
I think it's so. one of those intuitive things. I, yeah. I hope so. This book, I mean, was definitely my absolute favorite of yours. It, it just reignited my, oh, cool. my passion about the subject of the grail. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. So, you're, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to hear that. In the Chamber of Reflection and at our Patreon, Billy and I continue the interview with John Michael Greer in part two, where he expounds upon the origins of Freemasonry and connections to ancient religion, discusses the ceremony of the Grail, and much more. Join us for that compelling conversation. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. As always, if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks, and I salute you. And please remember, we're in the midst of our Meditations on the Tarot Study Circle that is open to all Chamber of Reflection paid members. Later in February, we're meeting to discuss The Hanged Man, and you should join us.